Thank you, Stephan. Good morning. I'm Pastor Brandon. I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to John chapter 11 as we continue working through this uh, wonderful book. And, and to start this morning, uh, I want to reflect on a question that King David asks at the beginning of the second psalm. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers gather together, take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Now, when you go back and look at Psalm 2, that is a psalm that celebrates the enthronement of God's promised king. It was a psalm that found its fulfillment in various iterations over the years, but was always pointing forward to a coming king, a Messiah, an anointed king. And the enthronement that it looked forward to was something that the nations and rulers of this earth sought to stop from happening. They, they counseled, they plotted together, they conspired, took counsel together. How can we knock God and his Messiah off of the throne? But, as the psalmist tells us, their plot was in vain. It was foolish. It was destined to fail. So, David's question, why do it? Why do it when nothing can stop God from accomplishing His plan of redemption? And the same question can be asked of our story this morning, our passage in John 11. In fact, when, when Peter and John, the same John who wrote this book, when, when they are later arrested and, and held captive by this very same council that's gathered here in John 11, in Acts chapter 4, as they're arrested for preaching the gospel, they testify before this same council, including some of the very same people like Caiaphas, and then they're released, they turn to Psalm 2 in order to interpret what is happening in this passage before us in John 11. This is their prayer in Acts chapter 4. Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. That's Psalm 2. And, and Here's where they see that being fulfilled. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, all of those who had plotted and conspired together to get rid of Jesus. And yet, in reality, they came together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Why rage and plot and conspire when nothing can stop God from accomplishing His plan of redemption? Why do any of us think that we know better than God or, or reach for earthly solutions instead of wait on God for His heavenly promises? And how gracious is God to us amid our, our foolish rebellion? Those are some of the questions I want to consider this morning as we look at John 11 and this plot that begins to form in order to get rid of Jesus. And I want to start by 
considering how easy it is for us to think that we know better than God. How easy it is to think that we know better than God. Now, the story itself uh, picks up right where we left off last week. If you were here with us, we looked at at the climactic sign of Jesus' earthly ministry when he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. And, and our story here starts with the immediate reactions to that. If you look again at verses 45 and 46, we see two different reactions. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. That's one of the reactions. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. That's the other one. And as, common in, in John, as is common in John's gospel, you see these different responses to the signs of Jesus. Some behold the sign and they draw the conclusion that Jesus really is who he says he is. They trust him. They believe in him. Others draw, they see the exact same signs, but they, they arrive at a different conclusion as they rush off to report the incident to the Pharisees kind of like the, the tattletale rushing up to the teacher or the, the neighborhood gossip picking up the phone immediately. They, they report what Jesus has done. And as you might guess, in this case, the report was something that they could not ignore. That, that someone who was dead for four days is now living as a result of Jesus, they cannot ignore this report. And so the leaders of Judea take counsel together. The Pharisees link up with the chief priests, kind of a, not exactly on, play, always playing on the same team, but they realize that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they, they gather together, they call the Jewish high council, what was called the Sanhedrin. They have heard a report of what God is doing through his son, but because they know better than God, they decide that they need to call a meeting and, and figure out what to do. Middle of verse 47, what are what are we going to do for this man? Listen, listen to what they say. Don't miss the irony here. For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Like, that was kind of the point, right? But here's, here's how they conclude. Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So a report that should have moved them to joy and faith instead results in all sorts of panic rising up in them, panic and fear. If we let God accomplish his plan, people will believe in Jesus and that will ruin everything. That's the logic. That's the logic. The leaders of Israel end up playing the role of the nations in Psalm 2 plotting, conspiring together, along with other nations, to stand against their own God and King. Now, of course, they would not agree with that interpretation of the situation. They did not see themselves as standing against their God. They saw themselves as the defenders of God, the defenders of His name and His place and His people. And they felt a particular urgency in that, uh, in defending it. Because if this Jesus character keeps gaining popularity and, and keeps fueling these uh, revolutionary hungers that, that the Jews had relative to Rome, who currently occupied and ruled them and does not take kindly to threats of rebellion, well, then they ju he just might catch Rome's attention. That we just, 
might end up getting an army here to come and, and, and squash this brewing rebellion. They'll come away and take both our place, Jerusalem, the temple, and our nation, the people. So whatever God thinks He's doing here, we know much better what Israel actually needs. And as easy as it is to, to criticize the Jewish council here, uh, it, it is not hard for us to do the exact same thing, is it? To think in whatever situation we find ourselves in that I actually know better than God in this moment. I, I, I think I know what this calls for. You know, whether we're talking about our, our daily behavior or the course of our lives or what's good for our kids, what our country needs right now, what will make me happy right now or give me identity or, or significance, what, what will win me the approval that I crave. I mean, how often do we find our, ourselves asking did God really say, right? Or, or, or looking, how often do we look at what Scripture says about a particular topic or, or activity or behavior institution and, and kind of apologize for what it says? Or, or even just ignore it and suppress it because that gets in the way of what I want to do or what I want to think or believe? We kind of think we know better than God sometimes. And, and not, that's, there's nothing new about that. Right? This temptation, this inclination to think I actually know better than God, that is as old as the fall of humanity. There's nothing new about that. In fact, that was the heart of the serpent's temptation in the garden. The one tree that was off limits to Adam and Eve was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they wanted that, the temptation, they wanted that knowledge for themselves. They wanted to become like God in knowing good and evil and being able to decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong, what's good, what's evil, what's true, what's false. Because we, we can't trust God to have all that power and authority to Himself. The epitome of sin is thinking that we would do a better job running the world than God. Or you think again of the imagery from Psalm 2. The beginning of Psalm 2 is the nations plot together to knock God off of His throne, to get rid of His Messiah. Look at their rally cry in Psalm 2 verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Let us break their chains. To them, God's rule is like God's rule over this world is like a prison. His laws are handcuffs. His truth is a cage. And if you're really going to be happy in this life, to truly live, you must break free from God. That's the rally cry. That's the logic. It's, it's the cry of modern expressive individualism, that, that, that common sense wisdom of our age that says, if you truly want to live, you have to be true not to God, but to yourself to follow your own heart. And the only way to do that is to break free from whatever family or friends or, or political affiliations or previous generations or religious authorities have to say. That's tradition, family, religion, God. Those are shackles. Those are chains that you must break free from to truly find yourself and live. That's what our world tells us. Whether it's a a sinful habit that I particularly enjoy, 
or a personal ambition that I can't afford God to derail, or a public cause that God's frankly not willing to go far enough to achieve, or a whole worldview that puts me right at the center of the universe. Whatever it is, how easy it is to think that we know better than God. And that faulty line of thinking moves us to prefer earthly solutions to heavenly promises, which is the next thing that we see in this story. How short-sighted it is to prefer earthly solutions over heavenly promises. So as the council here is gathered and wringing their hands in panic, one man stands up to speak sense into the room. Verse 49, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So Caiaphas is a character that we're going to meet again in John's gospel. He, was, uh, he served as the high priest in Israel from A.D. 18 to 36. So when John says that year, he's not talking about it as though it's this elected office every year or something, but that particular year, the year our Lord died, this guy was in charge. And, and not only does Caiaphas know better than God, he also knows better than everybody else in the room. That's how he starts his speech. You all know nothing. <laughs> Time to, to be quiet and listen to me. I have a plan. I have a solution, an expedient solution, an obvious answer. If Rome is such a threat, then wouldn't it be better to serve up to them one man to incur their wrath rather than risk letting that wrath fall on the entire nation. The Jewish leaders prefer an earthly solution over God's heavenly promises. And, and, and do not miss the evil of what he is proposing. Right, as we keep reading, we're going to see God actually uses this plan. Right, uh, But that does not excuse the evil of what Caiaphas and the leaders are intending. They are seeking to thwart the plan of God to stop him from fulfilling his promise to set an anointed king on his throne. They are plotting to accomplish the greatest act of evil in human history, to kill God's son. And for what? National security? I mean, maybe... They weren't entirely wrong to be afraid of Rome's anger. I mean, they, they had seen what happened before when some self-proclaimed Messiah stood up and, and, and roused the wrath of Rome who comes in and squashes the rebellion. But I mean, just bear with me for a moment. Shouldn't they fear God's wrath more than Rome's? I mean, that would seem to make sense, Right? As one author puts it, even if they get what they want, it is a most unworthy reward to appease the world by offending God. To appease the world by offending God. But there's almost certainly a deeper and more insidious motivation here than just national security. It is the preservation of their own power. Right? Under the current system, with Rome in charge, well, that means they're in charge of Judea. Rome lets them lead. 
And a messianic king messes that up. It messes up their, their power and control over the religious system and their plot to keep Rome happy. After all, they know better than God what Israel actually needs at this moment. Even if it means transgressing God's law, they will do what it takes to preserve God's people. That's, that's how their logic works. And so, as another author puts it, justice, justice is sacrificed to expediency. We've got an easy solution. It's not the right solution, but we're going to take it because we think it'll, it'll work. Justice, doing what is right before God, is sacrificed to expediency. They reach for an earthly solution rather than trust God to keep His heavenly promises. And it is so, so woefully short-sighted. Like, it, they are thinking about this particular moment, these few minutes in front of them, and losing sight of the big picture, to prefer an immediate satisfaction or a pragmatic solution or a, a temporary earthly stability that we think we can predict and control rather than the eternal security of God keeping His Word, of God bringing the life and peace that He promises. It kind of reminds us of uh, of ancient Israel's reaction after being delivered from slavery in Egypt when they're in the wilderness and they're hungry. They just got rescued from this horrible slavery, four generations, right? And what do they say? I wish we were back in Egypt because at least we'd have food, right? They're only focused on the immediate, the temporary, the easy, expedient solution, the comforts of slavery rather than the promise of God to bring them into the land. And again, that, it's real easy to pick on Israel sometimes. We are no different, right? We do the exact same thing still today. You know, when we encounter troubles in life, or when following Jesus gets costly, we look for the easy answer. What's acceptable, what feels safe and familiar and predictable, something that the world won't target us for, something we can kind of see and control rather than having to wait for God to show up. We, we grasp the earthly solution. Maybe that's remaining in a dating relationship or a friendship or even a work situation that we know is ungodly but we're more afraid of disappointing this person than dishonoring God. Maybe it's continuing in an unethical or, or a deceptive practice because we find more security in money than in the promises of God. Or maybe it's giving way to external pressure to do something or say something that we know is wrong because we value the approval of the world more than the pleasure of God. Perhaps it's as subtle as throwing all of our insight and energy at, at a problem without ever stopping to pray and ask God for His wisdom or His strength or for His will to be done. When, when the pressure is on, it is so easy to, to look for ways to avoid the pain even if it means stepping outside of God's will or plan. We, we prefer short-sighted earthly solutions over the truly lasting power 
of God's heavenly promises. John Calvin offers a simple and encouraging correction to this temptation. This temptation to guard against dangers that can only be avoided by departing from God's path. He writes this, We should first ask what God commands and wants to be done. We just jump to our own solutions. Let's start by asking what God says, what God thinks, right? And then whatever the outcome for us, that must stand firm. These men, as he, as he contrasts it with the leaders in John 11, these men, on the contrary, they determine to remove Christ so that no trouble shall, shall ensue from letting him continue as he began. But these are the counsels of men who look only to consequences. They're only interested in the consequences. What's going to happen in this moment if I actually obey God? The only godly and holy way is to first inquire what is pleasing to God. And then we should follow boldly whatever He commands and not be discouraged in any way by any fear, though we are beset by a thousand deaths. Our actions must not be directed by any gust of wind, but constantly by the Word of God alone. That's the way forward. Earthly solutions may seem easy, but they're always short-sighted. They don't work, and they don't last. It's so much better to trust God and follow His Word, even if the immediate consequences are beyond our expectations or our desires or our control. Trust God. Let Him handle the consequences. There's a deep irony in Caiaphas's logic here. Because when you, when you step back and look at you know, what he is trying to preserve through this plot, Israel is going to lose anyway within the next generation. Right? He, yes, Jesus will go to the cross, but guess what's going to happen within the next couple of decades? Rome's going to come in, and he's gonna, Rome's going to take away their place, and they're people. The temple will be destroyed anyway. The people will be, will be taken over. And even more ironic than that, the very office that Caiaphas is, is, is holding as he sets about this plot will be undone as a result of his plot because by sending Jesus to the cross, he's raising up the great and final high priest. There's no more priesthood after this. The guy accidentally works himself out of a job, right? But the irony goes deeper than that. In plotting that one man should die for the nation, Caiaphas says far more than he even realizes. In the language of Genesis 50, verse 20, what he intends for evil, God intends for good. And that brings us to the final point of how gracious God is to bend our rebellion toward His plan of redemption. If you look again at, at John's interpretation of Caiaphas' announcement, he, had, he, he states his plan, his answer, his solution to the crowd, to the council. This is what John says about it, verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord. 
But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, there is so much that's fascinating about John's explanation of Caiaphas' statement here. First, the idea that this guy's prophesying, like the bad guy who is now like plotting one of the worst evils in human history is said to be prophesying, God speaking through him. That's a bit of a shock, right? As one author explains, prophecy is an interesting term. Now, Caiaphas is not thereby said to be holy, much less a disciple of Jesus, or even to have been aware that he was prophesying, much less cognizant of its full meaning. As a man or a woman prophesies, they do so carried along by the Spirit of God, and their words can have a greater fulfillment than they themselves can possibly realize. So, so even as he states this plot, it doesn't mean he even knows that he's prophesying in that moment. So, so how can God use an evil man like that to prophesy? Alexander McLaren, who's a, a great Scottish preacher from the late, uh, late 19th and early 20th centuries, he, he puts it really well. He says this, well, did not the Spirit of God breathe through Balaam of old? Is there anything incredible in man prophesying unconsciously? Did not Pilate do so? When he nailed over the cross, this is the king of the Jews, conceiving himself to be perpetuating a rude jest while he was proclaiming an everlasting truth. And so, were not the lips of this unworthy, unspiritual, selfish, unscrupulous, cruel priest so used as that all unconsciously, his words lent themselves to the proclamation of the glorious central truth of Christianity, that Christ died for the nation that slew him and rejected him, and not for them only, but for all the world. How gracious is God to bend our rebellion toward his plan of redemption. And, and that's the second fascinating. It, the fact that he's prophesying is mind-blowing. But, but even more than that, and the greatest irony of all is what he actually prophesies. That for all of their plotting, for all of their conniving and scheming and colluding with Rome, where the leaders think that they're finally conquering Jesus, we are finally going to get rid of this guy. The best they could come up with the best plan that they could develop, to, could develop is what God had already ordained for them to do. Like, think about that. That's the best the world can do to try and overthrow God is to come up with the plan He's already ordained for them. This is amazing. Nothing, nothing can stop God from accomplishing His plan of redemption. No earthly power, no human wisdom, no plot from hell can overcome God's plan to accomplish his redemption. Jesus will, in fact, die in place of the nation. The plot will work, not because they're so smart, though. In fact, he will die not merely as a patsy 
to appease Rome or scapegoat, he will die as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. He will die to bear God's holy anger against his rebellious nation. Indeed, to bear the very sin of those who are plotting to hand him over. As the apostle Peter declares to the men of Judea on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, like they were around for what John reports here, right? They saw these signs. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So we still see their evil there, right? You crucified him. But we also see the irony of God's providence. They did it by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God was accomplishing his redemption through this. Nothing can stop him from doing it. Through the greatest act of evil in human history, God accomplishes the greatest good for all humanity. The forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God through faith in Jesus Christ. The one who gave his life as a substitute for sinners. And as John reminds us, Here in this story, this plan of redemption was not just for Israel, right? As Jesus said back in chapter 10, I have sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them as well so that there will be one flock, one shepherd. And so through the cross and resurrection, God is redeeming for himself a people from all nations to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And And this plan, this plan of redemption is still at work bearing fruit for God's glory to this very day. It's it's still happening. As easy as it is for us to think that we know better than God. As short-sighted as it is to prefer earthly solutions to God's heavenly promises, how much more gracious is God to take our rebellion and bend it toward his plan of redemption? He is still at work to redeem a people for himself, to offer forgiveness of sins to the very people who put him on the cross, you and me. Because that is where the story is going. We are now turning a corner in John's gospel As we turn the page to chapter 12 next week, the council here, they resolve to carry out Caiaphas' plan in verse 53. And in verse 54, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples, not because he was hiding or, or trying to avoid the inevitable but because he was waiting for his hour to come. If Jesus wanted to avoid getting killed, he would have never shown up to heal Lazarus. He knew what was coming, and he went. So he's simply waiting for his hour, and as we turn the page to chapter 12, that hour arrives. The next Passover of the Jews is at hand. 
which will be the final Passover of Jesus' earthly ministry, the final week of his life. The Passover lamb, just as the Passover lamb died in place of, of God's firstborn son Israel, so Jesus will take up and fulfill that Passover promise, that substitution, and give his life in place of God's people to pour it out as a ransom for many. Despite all of the efforts of the world to stop God from setting his anointed king on the throne, Jesus will be enthroned on a cross and complete God's plan of redemption. That's where the story is going. And John does not want to find his readers standing against that plan of redemption, trying to avoid it or skirt it or work against it. He wants us to joyfully receive it. And, and that is an invitation to those who don't yet know Christ to see the absolute certainty of God's plan of redemption. There is no outrunning it. There's no outmaneuvering it, and there's no outdoing it. Even if we try to look and find something better, the earthly solutions of this world will never compare. And our Lord is holding that door open, inviting us in to trust Him, to turn away from sin, and to trust Him and find the life that He alone can give. And, and, and showing us, convincing us of the absolute certainty of His plan of redemption, he, he wants us, none of us, to be standing against that, to come in. It's His invitation to those who don't yet believe, and it's His gracious guarantee to those who do believe, to those who do know Christ, that we are safe in the hands of our Messiah. If the, if the best thing that this world could do to try and stop God was come up with a plan he ordained for them, that's a pretty good, pretty good place for us to be. This world, as much as it tries to throw against us, cannot overcome. It cannot undo what God is doing. And so we can trust him that he really does know better than us. He really does. We can take him at his word. We can hold fast to his scripture. We can Wait patiently for his heavenly promises to be fulfilled and resist running to our earthly expedient solutions, especially the ones we think will help us avoid whatever hardships this world might throw. We can even trust him to take that persecution, that, that opposition, whatever this world might do, we could trust him to take that and bend it toward his glory to continue holding fast to His Word, and to continue holding that Word out to others. You know, it's incredible when Peter and John stood before the same council in Acts 4 and were told to zip it about Jesus. They knew they'd get in trouble if they did anything more, but they told Him, you got to stop talking about this guy. And they responded, well, we can obey God or you. think we're going to go with God on this one. And, and they released them, and they... they offered their prayer and praise to God, but look at what they prayed as they remembered these events and saw them through the lens of Psalm 2. Here's what they asked God to do. This is their prayer in Acts chapter 4. And now, Lord, look upon their threats 
and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. The world would love to shut us up for fear of opposition, for fear of of whatever persecution, whatever harm we might face. May May we remember who's really in charge. May we remember whose victory is truly secure, and may we continue to speak with boldness the gospel of our Savior. Nothing can stop God from accomplishing His plan of redemption. No awkward conversation with a neighbor, no new policy at work, nothing can stop God from accomplishing His plan of redemption. May we hold fast to that May we believe it with our whole, heart, our whole hearts, and may we continue to speak His Word with boldness. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, Lord, we need Your grace to continue to hold fast to Your gospel, and we thank You, Lord, that there is nothing this world can do to stop You from accomplishing Your plan. And Lord, when we are tempted to not believe that, which is often for some of us, Lord, When we're tempted not to believe that, help us look back to the cross. The worst this world could do was simply carry out what you planned for them to do. Lord, give us confidence of your sovereignty, of your grace to keep following you, trusting in your goodness, trusting in your power to accomplish your will. We ask it in Jesus' name.